uh, in that department tonight. Before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father God, uh, what a pleasure to be here. What a privilege. Um, Lord, again, it's just um, for me a, a joyful experience to be around uh, young men and women who are seeking you. Um, and Father, we're just grateful that you want us to seek us and that you indeed have sought us first. And Father, so as we think about some things that um, might be a little complicated to totally understand and get our heads around, Father, I pray that that's not a barrier to anyone. Father, I pray that in the end, uh, we know that faith in you is the only answer, that you have the answers even when we can't see them, even when we can't understand them. Lord, so this is our prayer. It's in your Son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so when I was here before, uh, we talked a little bit about what you might call the beginning of salvation. Uh, what was our fancy word for that beginning of salvation process? What's the word that comes to mind when we think about salvation? The first one. Wow, not the first one. So obviously I did a great job. Justification. Justification, right. So, uh, and we talked quite a bit about what that meant. Um, and so it sounds like maybe a good place to start is to um, maybe just get you guys in your groups. You know, the one take-home message I did get from my last time here is that you guys don't like to do Q&A the way I like to do Q&A. So I'll stick to uh, Brother Moss's script. Since we had two answers there, what I might ask you to do as a starting point, so that we kind of know where we're all starting from, is to, in your smaller groups, try to come up with what you think justification and sanctification are. You can, you can talk about that. How are they different? How are they the same? Are they the same? So just give you a second to kind of talk about that as a starting point. Because salvation includes justification, sanctification. Does anybody remember the final word of those three? Glorification. So we may not have a lot of time to talk about the last one tonight. Tonight we're going to focus on sanctification. But spend some time and, and see what you know about the differences in justification versus sanctification. And then we'll check right back in just a second. So I've had a little bit of feedback in overhearing some things that maybe, really, I didn't do a great job on justification. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but what do you guys got? Some, somebody tell me, justification versus sanctification. How do you think about that? Anybody. Everybody avoids eye contact. Wow. Yes. So I would say kind of, you could almost in some ways argue both of these are processes. Justification is this point where we are being made right in our standing before God, and then sanctification mm. kind of launches out of that, where we are being transformed more and more into you know, a Christ-likeness. All right, yeah, I, I like that, um, but I don't like it enough to, to suppress other people's answers. Uh, I don't want you guys just to settle on that. What else? Anybody have anything else that, that came to mind or was confusing or a question as you were trying to work through those distinctions or similarities? See how I covered every possibility there? All of them. Well, uh, if, yeah, so, so Tim, you're exactly right. I, I, would, I would not agree with everything you said. So remember, uh, and in fact, I'm not, even sure, I'm not even sure that how you explained it agreed with what you first said. So justification, I would say, is that way that we're made in right standing before God. Remember we talked when I was here before about you know, the fact that that was a declarative, imputed righteousness. And it was done. And now, my, just like someone before a judge whose sentence has been, uh, you know, he has been declared innocent or his debt paid, his, it's, it's, like, it's almost the legal analogies are very strong. His legal standing before God, he or she, is now as one united through Christ with God. So that, there's a temporal difference, I think, in justification versus sanctification. And so um, justification happens, and it's over, is my belief. Um, 
and then this process of sanctification that we're going to talk about tonight begins. Um, here's a here's a, a a nice way of thinking about it, um, and then we'll we'll read some scripture. And again, you guys have a sheet there, and it's my hope that we go through all of the verses here, but we may not. And also, please note, as is always the case, sometimes I've only listed one or two verses, but as I hope is your habit in study, you back up a little bit, and then sometimes you read a little bit past that. Um, but those are there, and, and we'll try to go through those. Um, but, you know, this, I think of justification as objective. This declarative action on God's part through Christ on our behalf. And then we are united with Him. Sanctification, I think, and again, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it and look at some evidence from theologians. Remember, I am not a theologian. Um, that sanctification is the process <clears throat> that happens afterwards even though our legal standing before God is, is fixed, we are, we are now seen as righteous before Him, not because we are made holy, but because we are united with Christ. But then the transformation of sort of our inner self, you might say, of our morality to be in line with that legal standing is, is kind of how I think about sanctification. So... Um, Another thing just to, to remind you of is, you know, this is Crash Course on Theology, so I'm not a theologian. I'm learning just like you guys. It's always great if we learn some new words in a Crash Course on Theology. So you remember this word from a couple of weeks ago, I hope. Now you guys are making me highly doubtful that you remember anything that I said um, from two weeks ago. But do you remember this word? Soteriology, sort of the study of salvation and the process of salvation. And, and I think so far we've established there's a beginning. Tonight we're going to kind of focus on, I'm not going to say the middle, the interim. And then, and then there's sort of a, I don't even want to call it an end, but there's a final step in that glorification, which we've talked about. Tonight's new word is pneumatology. Okay? Anybody heard this word before? Okay, for those of you, not to say that you would be the only ones that would know this, but say for my engineering or scientifically inclined folks in the room, what does that word remind you of? Pneumatic. Pneumatic. Okay. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> One for 26. We're on our way. Okay. All right. So, so pneumatic means what? Powered by air. Yeah. That's a, good, that's a good working definition, right? If we think of a tire, that's a pneumatic device. We have a pneumatic tool, right, like an air drill. And so, and again, uh, Drew Moss knows way more about the Greek language than do I. I can tell you all the random symbols and how they fit in a whole bunch of equations, but there's no relationship between any of those Greek letters, much less a word. So, so the first part of this, pneuma, right, is a Greek word meaning wind or air, so then this pneumatology is, is kind of, if this is the study of salvation, you could say this is in a way a study of the Holy Spirit, and not just the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, but, but tonight that's kind of what we're going to limit it to. Um, and so, so we can kind of think about that this initial justification, which we talked about in terms of our union with Christ, our being made righteousness, our adoption, that happened. Okay. Now, through this process of sanctification, which we'll see the Father, uh, God uses the Holy Spirit to help mediate that. But if you remember, I spent maybe too much time talking about all the places in Scripture where we encounter things that are, that are difficult for us to process. Whether it's when Drew taught many weeks ago on the Trinity, right? God is being this superposition, remember I use this word of, of the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, each of which are independent, not related to one another, and yet together in a complex way become something that's tangible and larger than any one of those. And there are lots of examples of that. Salvation, remember we talked about for justification. How can justification be both by God's grace and by faith? Faith sounds like a works. 
but Scripture tells us that we can't earn that. Right? So we have a lot of these complex and sometimes to our linear way of Greek thinking, contradictory ideas that can place barriers in our way. And so, so what I would say, right, the Jewish way of thinking is, well, I can't, just, I can't just limit the Holy Spirit's role to just this part because we know, right, he also plays a part in this, right? And, and similarly, um, well, probably to connect soteriology and sanctification doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, but it's, it's all part and parcel. So sort of the Jewish way of circular thinking where there is truly an complex interconnection between all of these bits and pieces that we want to process serially. I do this, comma, then this happens. Why? Because it makes me, gives me security in my own thinking. And so sanctification is one of those processes where I think we squarely find ourselves, if we think about it in detail, there is a potential to, to generate doubt in our own faith. And, and one of the things I want to leave with tonight is for everyone to have confidence and how do they know that the Holy Spirit is working in them and sanctifying them. So, so that's your next question. Who has the Holy Spirit and how do you know that they, he, you, her, me has the Holy Spirit? Okay, so again, in typical Mike Myers fashion, I will tell you to talk amongst yourselves. That's awesome. Trinity did a lot of answering for this question right here. So, and I'm going to write a couple of points down, but somebody tell me this. Who has the Holy Spirit? Yes, ma'am. Um, anyone who has been saved or justified. Okay. Yep. So the justified. I would say. All right. Now, Trinity did a great job here. Talked about fruits of the Spirit. And when we think about fruits of the Spirit, what is our biblical text that supports that? Right. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You'll notice that that is on your piece of paper. Shouldn't be a surprise. Um, and in fact, yeah. So, um, so yeah, as you look through the way those Scripture verses are organized on your sheet, and we'll spend some time going through there, you'll see that I've made an attempt at some organization there. Because one of the questions then, right, so the Holy Spirit is, right, Christ asked for God to send it. God promised He would send it, right? It is, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells in those who are justified and is carrying out the act and action of sanctification. And so, uh, one of the things that that I think is, is a little bit maybe difficult to think about is, okay, well, if God sent the Holy Spirit, hey, that's one of those three legs of the Trinity, right? So I'm just a guy. So I'm going to sit back and let the Holy Spirit do its thing, right? Because we're, we're saying that the Holy Spirit is involved in our sanctification. But, you know, as you'll read at the top of your sheet there, right? How do you guys think about our role in that, right? So Trinity gave some things there, uh, you know, she used the phrase that we hear a lot, our walk. Right? So, so what does that mean? Is that part of our responsibility in sanctification? What does that look like? Anybody? I know you guys don't like to answer this way, but, you know, we're such a small group, we're basically one little group. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, uh, I think, you know, since Drew said that, I, I, I may even, because what he's talking about is an example of this duality of things that we find in the Christian uh, principles of being a Christian and in examples in the Bible so much, this, 
the Holy Spirit and me, and what does that look like? So even though it's further down on your page under the category sanctification and us, it could also be under sanctification and God. And so that's Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Let's read that. Uh, it's, it will be familiar to you. And so once I printed that up, I was, uh, I was quite unhappy with myself that I did not include it under the first one and the second one and the third one. And this speaks a little bit to what Drew just said. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Okay, so maybe I'll just read it here. And apologies, this is my emergency Gideon Bible from my office, so it's the New King James Version. My New American Standard, which is the only correct version, by the way, um, is still sitting on my desk. Okay, that was just op-ed piece, don't believe it. Verse 12 of Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We hear that a lot, right? And in fact, if you've heard people talk about, and I'm trying not to delve into that so much tonight, but the Calvinistic versus Arminian view of perseverance and uh, salvation, sometimes this one gets brought up in the latter, i.e. with the Arminian view. But you got to read these together, and in fact, again, you probably need to read more than just these two verses. But look at what verse 13 says. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there's an expectation of what we're to do as God is doing in us. And so, you know, to make an artificial, you know, org chart of the relative contributions of these parts of the Trinity as a starter to our sanctification, and then more importantly, what's our role is again you know, our attempt to make a model that we can, you know, work with in our head to understand a complex process. But at the same time, we know it can't be so complex that we can't understand and be successful in living out that. Okay, so, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Drew bringing that point up now sort of made me think of that. There's, there's what God is doing in us and the expectation of what we will do in response to that. Uh, and so again, that's a, you know, a combination of two things which are somewhat, in a way, even at odds with one another um, in terms of our own, our own tendency to still sin as this is happening. Uh, and we'll talk about this. Oh, I see why everybody looks so confused. It's misspelled. Oh, don't, you guys, don't let me get away with that kind of stuff. Okay, call me out on it. All right, now, see, you guys thought we were talking about Santa Claus, didn't you? That's why nobody wanted to talk. Okay. I get you. I get you. All right, so let's, let's take a look at what Scripture says a bit, because we, we have our ideas. Uh, we've talked about what we think justification is like, how sanctification is different from that. Let me very quickly ask you a quick question. I think we'll sum up some of what we discussed. True, false. Okay, stick with me. Surely we can all do true, false out loud. Justification is binary, i.e. sort of a yes, no, but there, are, there can be varying degrees of sanctification. True or false? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty easy, slow pitch, right? Not, not too difficult. Okay, just want to make sure we're all in agreement on that. All right, so let's, uh, I sort of organize these as sanctification in God, and by that I mean God's role and the Holy Spirit. So again, it's somewhat artificial to break those out, but I did that because the text specifically mentions the Holy Spirit uh, for those listed in point B. All right, so would somebody, if you'll just take a moment and uh, somebody... Find the first one, First Thessalonians. Somebody find the Titus one. Uh, somebody find the Hebrews, the Philippians, and the First Corinthians, which should be familiar because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And then once you have them, uh, whoever has the first, just go ahead and we'll just kind of read through those as listed there, recognizing that, again, in your own study time, you might want to include a few more verses there. So whenever somebody has the first one, just take off.
Okay, awesome. Th thank you, Tabby. This fan's a little bit loud, so uh, probably all of you guys could hear. Chloe, you and Aaron probably might. Right, right. Now, of course, if I was that kind of teacher, I'd say if you guys would move over here. But anyway, yeah, that'd be great. So we have God and sanctified just spelled out right there in, in black and white. Um, okay, who's got the next one? Titus. Wow, so I'm going to have to like call people. Surely somebody has the Titus verse. All right, well, thank you. Who's gonna, who has Hebrews? Thank you. Drew, who has? Thank you. Thank you. All right, Titus. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself for his own Awesome. So again, we hear words like, may he do this in you, right? Okay, uh, Philippians, and there's 1, 6, and then the verses in chapter 2. In 1, 6, do you want me to start in verse 4 or just go straight to 6? Uh, you can start in 4. So as it turns out, I'm not disappointed in myself. I did get that verse in both places. Uh, yeah, so again, we're hearing about God doing a work in us, a continuing work and ongoing work, right? So the temporal aspects of sanctification already sound very different than justification. Okay, the last one there, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Awesome. Okay. And if that continues, as I told you guys before, one of my very favorite passages in my line of work, the next verse says, For it as it is written, back in Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever will I set aside. So I take great comfort in that verse. Because a lot of times there's a lot of clever people, way more clever than me, and I feel like I'm struggling. Okay. Now, um, I've sort of given it away, right? In all of those passages, it talks about God doing a work in us. In these next few passages, um, and obviously the Galatians one we've already talked about and is very familiar, but let me read out of Romans 8, where it's very specific about how the Holy Spirit is carrying out uh, the sanctification process in us through the examples that we just read in the other passages. Of course, Romans 8, right, that's one of the you know, chapters that, you know, wall of fame kind of chapters in, in Scripture. Uh, so let me, let me just go ahead and start in verse 4. <clears throat> Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Uh, I'm going to skip on to verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I'm going to go down to verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, in, in Romans 12, that's there also, a, again, a, an entire verse, sorry, an entire chapter that's kind of talking about the work of the Spirit. Uh, I, I left a lot of those verses there for you. Um, in fact, you could just write next to that all of chapter 12. Let me read 12, 1 and 2. It's very familiar to you. It's a verse that is so important, I think. Um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in the rest of that chapter, it makes it very clear that that renewing comes from the action of the Holy Spirit in us. So, um, right, when we think about this new word, it was new to me, pneumatology, and, and we've always, I think, probably heard, hey, you know, when you become a Christian, you may have heard it, hey, when you get saved, I think to be complete, when you are justified and in right legal standing with God, the Holy Spirit enters you and indwells in you permanently. Now, let's take a break right there and think back. Is the Holy Spirit just a New Testament thing? And if not, do you know of any examples where He, and I use He because I have no better way of describing the infin infinite thing that is the Holy Spirit, uh, can you think of examples in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit might appear? So I'll give you a little time to talk about that, and even if you want to flip back and, and try to find a scripture or something, a verse that talks about the Old Testament and the Holy, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, that would be a good thing to do. And then we'll talk about it. All right, so... it. Is there mention of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes. Okay. What are some examples? Genesis? Genesis 1, verse 2, you said? Okay. Did you really say that? Okay. That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, okay. That's a good one. In fact, I heard you say that one very early on, so I tip my hat to you, that you had that at such ready disposal. Yeah, what's going on in Ezekiel 36? You basically have God saying to these people that there's going to come a day when I'll actually put my own spirit inside of you. Yeah. And what's the spirit inside of them going to cause them to do? Right, you will become my people, right? And so, yeah, that one's cool. Uh, I, I had, I must confess, I had forgotten about that. I had to, had to find it with a little digging. What else? Any others? The one that always comes to my mind is Isaiah 11. Right, this is the famous, uh, you know, root of Jesse, and where it basically gives the very plain prophecy of the Messiah as well as the Spirit. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. I'll just read that very quickly. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So if you ever want to think about what the Spirit does, this is a great verse that talks about that, right? His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And then it goes on to talk about uh, some messianic prophecy there. 
So probably you guys have some others. Does anybody have one they're just dying to, to say? Drew? I think even David, uh, David makes mention of the Spirit came upon me, and maybe. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, Holy Spirit's in the Old Testament. Again, not to insult your intelligence, I suspect you all knew that anyway. But I think for me, this is a great reminder when I go and read some of those passages in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes and then leaves and, you know, as in a David um, uh, or, you know, with some of the prophets. And yet, we have the Holy Spirit permanently. And, and just sort of like I have the Word of God permanently at my disposal, I don't treat it, I don't take it, I take it for granted, Right? too much. And so uh, us being in tune with the Spirit. So if we go and look at uh, section C there in the scripture, sanctification and us, again a loose organizational scheme to be sure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 we've read at least twice. I won't do that again. Uh, Romans 8 right? you'll notice uh, a verse out of that same set of verses which previously was alluding to sanctification and the Holy Spirit. But again Right? In all of these passages, there is a, a connection between our responsibility, what God's doing through the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, and so it's, it's this synergy, for, for lack of a better word, uh, that's happening. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that was mentioned earlier. That is the visible fruit of the Spirit in us, but we are, re- we are responsible for that fruit. Right? Even though God is... Uh, is allowing it to happen, we are responsible for also uh, pursuing that and allowing it to happen. Uh, Let me pick there um, the Romans 12 verses. Again, we had some of those earlier. Uh, There was one that I wanted to make sure we didn't miss. And the reason this is important, right earlier, I think uh, Chloe or someone mentioned, you know, our walk. Right, our walk in this sanctification process. So it's important to see how that's described in Scripture. Right, We've read verses that talk about us walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Um, you know, it doesn't say, okay, right, you, you have to do this X number of times and that Y number of times right, and, and love these many people. Of course, that that's a, sounds a little bit absurd, but wow, wouldn't we be so much more comfortable with that? Um, because it would be, it would be something defined. I think, I think the level of our spiritual maturity can be gauged based on our comfort level with ambiguity. I know when I think back to being a young Christian, I was firmly, okay, I got saved on this date and I'm on my way. Go pokes, right? Uh, I'm good. Thank you, Lord. And, you know, the older I get, that's just ridiculous in the sense that it's not ridiculous that I say, thank you, Lord, that that justification event happened. But, you know, now I, if the Spirit is working in me, I'm going to have a hunger, right? I'm going to have a desire to, uh, to let those fruits of the Spirit mature. Right. So anyway, let me uh, Romans 12. I feel like we skipped a couple of key verses there. Let me just check. Really, as I said before, even for the other one, all of of Romans 12 is um, is good. This does have some things that are maybe a little bit more specific, right? So uh, talks about different gifts, how we use those in ministry, encouragement in verse eight. Uh, Let love be without hypocrisy in verse nine. Brotherly love, affectionate, kindness. So these are some of the things that are rather specific. I knew that's why I wanted to go back to this. That lead to those fruits of the Spirit. 
Okay, so um, anything so far that that's bugging you, or you seem like, um, or, or that you think needs some some additional explanation? Good working models. The first time I came here, I think week one when Drew taught, he made the comments about, you know, we, we need working models in our heads about things. And, and as I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, I've basically made a living in science doing that. Some of our working models are completely false. We know they're false. But it allows us to get work done. And so we can go along on this sanctification process without understanding all of the mechanics of how it's working, this, this mystery, but I still like to have working models. Uh, I can't remember if I said this when I was here before. It may have been me and my dad talking about it based on Christmases long ago. You guys are obviously way younger than me. Do they still sell these little rock tumbler things where you, you plug it into the wall and you put in this ugly rock and then you're supposed to come back and it's supposed to be like a beautiful gemstone? Okay, This is how I think about sanctification. Let's assume that any of those work. None of mine ever worked. But, but I think about sanctification this way, and justification. Uh, you know, God is walking through a, I don't know, deserted strip mine field somewhere. Somebody came in, they blasted the whole mountain off, they were going to find gold. Um, and they gave up and went on their way. So God's walking along and he finds this, this ugly rock. And you can tell maybe on one side there's a little glint of some ore. Silver, gold, take your pick, I don't care. And so he puts it in his pocket. I go to home to God's house. That's justification. But when he gets home, he plugs in his rock tumbler and he throws me in there. And over 40 or 50 years at the end, I begin to look like gold or alternatively, what he probably really should do with me is not the room temperature rock tumbler, but the smelter, right? So the high temperature smelter, he throws me in there and the refining process begins. Alternatively, he could have scooped me out as a dirty mixture of wastewater and put me in a fractional distillation column and allowed me to reflux for 30 years. These are the analogies that go through my head. Eventually, at the end, he gets something that looks like pure, clean water. Okay, these are my analogies for sanctification and justification. God chose me. I am his now. Even though at that time, when I, when I chose to be chosen, at least I think I did, I, I was not looking much like Jesus, right? But along the way, through his smelting or, you know, Hasbro rock tumbler version 27.0, I am in the process of sanctification. All right. Um, how do you view sanctification and sin? Okay. Can, can you be in the process of sanctification and be habitually engaging in the same sin? Do you feel like that's a smaller small group question or we're small enough small group question? Yeah, now we're jamming. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I think that you can be in the process of sanctification if there's a particular sin you're struggling with, but the fact is you're struggling with it, you're struggling against it. I don't know if that is how, if you would define habitual sin. Yeah. I get it. I mean, I know a little bit of this is a, is a, uh, you know, sort of language and getting caught up in the semantics. That's not what I want to do. Uh, let me read scripture for you. It'll be familiar. Romans 7. 18 through 25. Now, after we read this, I'm going to defer a little bit to my theologian friend, Drew, because I've heard various explanations of the context here. But I'm going to take it at face value first. Romans 7, 18 through 25. This is Paul talking, of course. For I know that in me nothing good dwells, for to will, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Again, apologies for the translations. Now if I do what I will not, what I will not to do, in other words, what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Uh, Let me go down to verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So let me ask the easier question first in light of that text. Is sin present during the process of sanctification? Okay. Um, If a person is willingly engaging in a habitual sin, how do you think about that? And how do you think about Paul's description there? Is Paul saying, um, yeah, you know, I'm going to keep sinning. I know I am. I don't like it. You know, Praise God that Christ is taking care of that. You know, because there are some views that say this, this goal of perfection is achievable. Right? To them, perfection in Christ doesn't mean the completeness. Right? Sort of the Greek word for perfect means to be complete. But it, it means to be without sin. Uh, so, so, so how do you guys think about that? We, we agree that we're probably not perfectionists. We think we're going to have sin. That's, that's how I think. But, you know, if you, and I'll just pick on the one that, that guys have a big problem with, in my younger years, if I had had the cell phones that we have now, it could have been a problem for me, and that's pornography, right? That, that visual stimulation can be a source of habitual sin for guys. So if, if a guy is involved in that, and you use the word struggling with it, that means, oh, wow, I have not, to me, I interpret that to mean I've not given in to that yet. I know that I need to be resisting this. How do you guys think about that? But I'm not, I, I will not articulate the perfect question for this, this situation. But to be habitually in sin and in sanctification, how do you think about that? Drew, maybe you can clarify the way I'm trying to ask this. Yeah, Tim. One thing that's, yeah, I, I don't know the exact reference, but Peter in one of his letters talks about how you know, talking about the person who is not saved, and you know, it's like this pig that just runs back to the mud. And, and it's this picture of it's just, it's their very nature, it's what they do. And, and contrary to that, we have this nature to where, you know, we may, you know, get a little bit of mud on us, but we see that, we're like, no, I can't do it, I have to get a hold of this. And so that's kind of the perspective of, okay, what is our view towards this? Is it a haphazard? casual, I'm not going to worry about it, or is it no, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to pursue it even if I may get dirty from time to time, I'm going to strive to get away from this. And I think, you know, you see a lot of passages in Scripture where you have, you know, the evidence, yes, of your salvation is the fruit, but it, it also is this grace involved of, you know, God knowing your conscience uh, and yeah. throughout all the details of what I was going yeah. to say, because going into John yeah, First John three. If you look right there under sanctification in us, First John three four through six is are those passages I think you're thinking about. Yeah, that's that's a good example. You know, you could also phrase the question this way: As we are being sanctified, is it possible that God will give us over to a certain sin? Will He will He allow us to? You know, you know, he, Scripture talks about. Not necessarily, well, it sort of does. You know, God gave them over to themselves, right? Some of the very deviant sins that, that are described. Um, um, well, yeah. I think that, like, our heart can become hardened uh, to certain sins. So, like, I don't, I don't know necessarily that, like, it's the Lord giving us over to that. Like, he is sad to see us continue suffering in that. But, like, he, um, he almost stops pushing back because we have, our hearts have become so hardened that we're not going to Yeah. Yeah, I like the word struggling. You know, struggle is an encouraging word to me in that context. Well, we may not read through all the verses, but you'll see right there, I'm going to read through a couple. Uh, point D is perseverance. And, and this has a lot to do with us having confidence in our sanctification process. 
And, and I know for me, when you hear that word perseverance in a theological context, I have always been guilty in my younger years of, incur- of interpreting it this way. That, oh wow, you know, I, I have to persevere. I have to run the good race. That's, that's certainly biblical. But in truth, sort of the theological context of perseverance is, is not just, okay, we got to get it right. It is God preserving us through that. And, and so let, let me just give you a couple of things to, to look at in that context. Uh, you'll see point E right there. Well, um, let me read some of these verses very quickly for time under perseverance just to set the stage. Uh, Hebrews, well, I'm already in Romans 8, so let me just read 31 through 39. Again, these will be familiar to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And again, we could go down a big rabbit, Calvinistic, Arminian hole, um, but we won't do that. It is God who justifies. Awesome. Who is he who condemns. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Right, a verse we claim with great joy, meaning that Christ needs to be there interceding for us, right? Uh, At least that's how I think about it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And then you go on where you hear the very famous verses about, you know, neither uh, height nor depths. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. So that, on the one hand, is a verse that we, a series of, a passage we could take about perseverance and preservation, right, through that sanctification process. Uh, for the sake of time, let me read Hebrews 7.25 really quick, and then I'm going to have you guys... Uh, read those last ones under contradictions. Uh, Hebrews 7.25, this probably needs more text around it, but therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Right. So a continuation of the Romans one. Uh, John 11.42 very quickly. And we're setting this up for what I hope is some thinking that gives you confidence in your preservation through the sanctification process. So John 11:42. And I know that you always hear me but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Wow, that doesn't seem to be the right verse. Okay. Not at all. All right, uh, sorry about that. Okay, would someone read John 10, 27 through 30, and then someone else find Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Awesome. So what does that make you think about in terms of uh, God preserving our salvation? Or stated differently, our ability to lose our salvation. Right. Uh, and this is sort of what, what perseverance kind of really alludes to. Okay, someone read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Sorry, could I ask you to read a little bit louder? Or is it possible in the case of um, those who have been enlightened, uh, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, 
then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they have crucified once again the Son of God of their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That sounds a little different, doesn't it? And first, let me give my qualifier. Uh, this is a pretty complex passage, and I, I don't profess to understand all of it. Uh, and because I don't profess to understand all of it, I can't tell you, oh, there's no way that the Hebrews passage contradicts the John passage. They are in agreement. But, but what I will encourage you to do, and I'm going to read what I think is going on there in a moment, but if, if you go on down, I, I wrote it there on your sheet, uh, verse 9 of that same chapter, so Hebrews 6, 9, so after we read 4 through 6 where it sounds like, oh wow, if, if they're being specific to state that if you've already tasted because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then you fall away, that logically suggests you can fall away, right? But then if you go down to verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So it's almost as if the writer of Hebrews, and we could get a little debate into who actually wrote Hebrews. Um, everybody has their favorite answer. I can't say Paul here. I'm pretty sure about that. But it, it sounds as if what was described in 4 through 6 for the justified, filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified, sounds like it, it doesn't happen. For, for you, there is a better outcome. So, so let me just read, because I'm not a theologian, I had to go to my favorite book that I told you guys about before. So, so let me read this little summary paragraph, because I don't want to leave you in some state of confusion. I, I think, in the end, I, I was really encouraged by this. So we have a way to, to connect John 10 and Hebrews 6. While Hebrews 6 indicates that genuine believers can fall away, John 10, the first passage that we read, teaches that they will not. There is a logical possibility of apostasy, but it will not come to pass in the case of believers. Although they could abandon their faith and consequently come to the fate described in Hebrews 6, that last passage, the grace of God prevents them from committing this apostasy. God does this not by making it impossible for believers to fall away, i.e. choice is preserved, but making it certain that they will not. And I would say, through the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we, could, we could go a long time into that little bit, and, and I almost stopped right before that. But the more I study this, the more I cling to Paul's description of this with confidence and faith, the mystery of our salvation, right? The mystery of this gift. Because the mystery means that it is God making it happen. Uh, even in the midst of my own weakness and failing. Drew, anything you want to add to that little line of discussion? Yeah. Right. I do believe what what you know, it seems like most theologians that are solid, even if I disagree with them, they're all on the same page of like a person who lives without the, a continual lack of repentance of their heart. Almost thumbing their nose at God because hey, I said the prayer when I was in third grade. Oh yeah. So therefore yeah. I'm good. That's a sign some some theologians would say, Well that person has lost their salvation. Others would say it's a sign that they never really had the Holy yeah. Spirit in the yeah. first place. But they both are landing in the same place. Yep. That is a lack of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life who can thumb their nose at God and go, Yeah. Well, you owe me. I, I, I prayed the prayer so you've got to save me. Right, right, yeah. So even, even though there can be two sides, most good theologians agree yes. that to live in such a manner is a lack of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you're not going to just... You're going to struggle. Yeah. And I think the confidence that that gives me, and again, I like the way Drew described that because it, it clearly illuminates the fact that we spend way too much time talking about, you know, these sort of kind of borderline cases or, you know, things that, that really 
are not the mainstream of Christianity. For me, this gives me confidence that through this sanctification process, God will, God will work it out as I seek Him, as I, even in times that I struggle, as I acknowledge that it's my faith in Him and the justification through Christ that is getting me to the next step. And so, so in the end, I brought all of that up to give you confidence not to plant the seeds of doubt. We, we, we must have confidence in what the Lord is doing in us. Um, and the older I get, I will tell you, I mean, I know you guys have heard this so many times, it's so true, you will say it one day, so allow me my saying it. It literally feels like just the other day when I was sitting there. I mean, how quickly time goes. But the blessing in that is that, I mean, God is faithful, and God gives you a security with years, not because, oh, wow, God did this for me, and God did that for me in terms of material things, but God draws me near. And I, as I get older, I feel it more. And maybe that's because I was too proud, too arrogant, and didn't know what humility meant when I was young. I don't know. But um, it's a great blessing. And so, you know, it's my prayer for you that, that God gets you to that point a lot faster than he did me. But he will. Uh, and you may already be there. Uh, so, so anyway, anything else that, that you guys feel like we skipped over? Um, you know, any one of these weekly snippets that we do, you could build an entire semester on. Um, that is how amazing and rich is, is God's Word. Can I ask you, Jeff? Yeah. In your own, from your own experience, following Jesus, when we talk about being in step with the Spirit, in our own responsibility of life, what have you found in your own walk? What are the kinds of things that keeps you in step with the Spirit? What are the kinds of things that helps you to grow in your yeah. <clears throat> I have a few easy, easy to define habits. Uh, typically, when I get to work each day, you know, a lot of people say, "Okay, as soon as you wake up in the morning, your quiet time, you know, in your room, you know, closet, dark place, all that." For me, because the pride and arrogance that has always gone along with my vocation is a barrier. As soon as I get to work. And my tendency is to do emails and look at this and look at that. That's when I stop. And that's when I sit down and read the Word. Because it reminds me that, yeah, you're, you're just a guy who's really not very special. Praise God that, that He wanted me to be reconciled to Him. So that's, that's a habit I do. And I would love to tell you I never fail in that five days a week, but... Sometimes I do. But, but so that, that's, that's one thing that helps me. It centers me and focuses me at the beginning of the day when I am at the greatest risk of losing sight of God. Um, you know, there was a period of time where I felt like, okay, well, um, you know, I'm very involved in church and, you know, I do this and I do that. That's equivalent. You know, that, that's a form of tithing. So, okay, maybe I'm not giving everything that I should be giving, but I'm doing this other stuff, right? Well, this was just arrogance and pride and rationalization. So, again, much later than I would like to tell you, much later than it should have been, but the point at which I became a true tither, and then what I would say, not because I want to tell you it's more than 10%, but recognizing, oh, wow, God's blessing me, you know, that that really had a big impact, I think, on my, on my walk. Um, because as I told JC yeah. and Abby when we were doing the million billion question, I, I truly, I've, I, I don't care about money. And I don't say that so I can somehow sound braggadocious or, but I really don't. And, and I think I used to not be that way. And so that was a way that, that God really, um, I think, drew me closer to him. And then, of course, I'm a very independent. Uh, my wife says, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this alone show where they go and dump somebody out. She's like, you could win. I have the ability. I can be alone a lot. Um, you know, narcissists sometimes have that problem. Um, so being, you know, surrounding myself with, with brothers and sisters in Christ is super important. 
And, and a lot of those things, you okay, you just said, go to church, read your Bible, uh, and tithe. There's a reason that we talk about those things a lot. They're super important. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think you guys have a hot date with Brahms. Hopefully it'll be a cold date with some ice cream at Brahms. Thank you very much.